Talo for Lava. This is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susana Suiswiki. Coming up. James has been consistent in looking to amplify the Pacific voice and the impact of climate change. New Zealand's Green Party co-leader James Shaw is stepping down. We look at the impact he's had on the Pacific region. Also, this airport is the lifeline of our economy. The Cook Islands International Airport in Rarotonga celebrates its 50th anniversary. And later on, we tell a with with Tongan chef Dovai Poloniati, who's leading an Auckland restaurant. The co-leader of the New Zealand Green Party, James Shaw, has announced he'll be stepping aside in March. We are very much a new caucus now, uh, moving into opposition again for the first time in six years, uh, and I feel it is the time is right for, for a new co-leader to stand alongside Marama. He served as New Zealand's climate change minister for six years and as Green Party co-leader for almost nine. Pacific political commentator Thomas Wynne told Caleb Fotheringham James Shaw's legacy around climate change will be long-lasting in the region. I think James has been consistent in looking to amplify the Pacific voice and the impact of climate change for Pacific peoples. And for him, it was a key priority. I think one of the significant pieces of work was when the government co-sponsored and led by James Vanuatu, when they went to the ICJ, and of course the ICJ is in everybody's sort of uh, crosshairs at the moment, uh, where they co-sponsored Vanuatu, asking the question and clarification on other states' legal obligations in protecting the rights of places like the Pacific from climate change and the adverse effects of it. And what he did there was he really helped large ocean states have a voice against larger polluting countries and to get a UN legal opinion on it. You know, uh, I think of all the things that James has done, the mechanisms that he's utilised, that for me is one that's a real standout because he allowed Vanuatu to lead it and the government here at the time co-sponsored it. So that, that one sort of sticks out in my mind probably the most. And then, of course, at COP25 and you know the different COPs, James went as the climate change minister. And I know friends of mine and colleagues that were working at the Moana Blue Pacific space, you know, always appreciated his support. And I think lastly, the Pacific countries especially wanted greater access to climate funding, climate adaptation funding. You know, many of these larger countries talk about green climate funding and the financing available, but often these countries do not have the skills to be able to access it and the cumbersome to do. And, And James was really good at helping Pacific countries get a hold of that financing so they could do what they needed to do in their own country and self-determine for themselves what they needed to do to combat something that actually, you know, they hadn't precipitated. So I think that will go down for me. I think in the Pacific, you know, James was a friend to the Pacific and he practised what he preached. And I, you know, I think that's something that will be a legacy of his for us in the Pacific. Do you imagine Pacific leaders will be quite sad to see him go then? Yeah, I, I can imagine there's a sense of uncertainty now, you know, with James gone, you know, there were, you know, in the Pacific, everything is around relationship. And, you know, James had a good relationship with the, the nations in the Pacific. And I think locally, our younger Pacific voter uh, really leaned into the principles and the values of the Green Party 
I know numbers of my, even my own children, uh, voted for the Greens, and there was something about their message that resonated with that younger uh, Pacific voter making their way through that maybe became disenfranchised or disillusioned with the other parties or the other main parties that Pacific people have generally, you know, leaned into. So I, I can see as the future goes on, you know, with James stepping out, the next person stepping in will be critical to really capture that Pacific voice and that Pacific vote in this next generation coming through this next election cycle. Do you think James Shaw will be, you know, we've spoken in as he's primarily, it seems, known for sort of that climate change space. Do you think he'll be remembered for, for other things that he potentially did for Pacific peoples outside of that? No, I don't. I think actually this will be the area. And, and it really was unashamedly his focus. Um, you know, Madam had, uh, you know, the uh, domestic, the DV, domestic violence, family violence space and other, you know, parts of the Green Caucus had other uh, remits. But James was very clear about what he stood for, what he championed. And, you know, if one is realistic, one can do one job really, really well and Parliament can put you across a whole range of work. And sometimes you don't do it all well because your focus is somewhere else. But James was very clear about what he wanted to do and what his focus was. I think his legacy around climate change will will be long-lasting. Who do you think is going to be the next leader? Look, um, selfishly, uh, if I could say, look, I really think, and I am biased, I'm 100% biased, I just needed to admit my bias, but my cousin, Tiano Tuiono, I think would be an amazing leader uh, for the Greens. Uh, he's Pacific and Māori, and, mm. you know, he's... He has courage. He's spoken his truth in Parliament and outside. Um, he leads uh, from the back and he just serves. So my pick, and I declare my bias, would definitely be Tiano. I think he would be an amazing co-leader to the Green Party and to partner with, uh, you know, the amazing work that Martin does. And I imagine if he is picked he can fill some of that Pacific gap that James Shaw could potentially leave behind with that climate space stuff that he's been so focused on? Yeah, look, I think it, I think it would send a very, very strong signal to the Pacific that the Green Party see the value in Pacific people within their, not just within their party, but within their leadership. And, you know, to have someone potentially like Tiano, you know, in the Pacific championing on behalf of the Pacific climate change uh, crisis um, would just be uh, something I know for Pacific people would really, really just support. Um, but ultimately, that decision with the Greens will be left to their members and not make the right decision. A political sociologist says Fiji's Prime Minister, Sitiveni Ramboka, likely dismissed Education Minister Asiri Ranjojo to avoid looking weak. Despite requesting to be reinstated as a Cabinet Minister, Asiri Ranjojo's pleas have so far fallen on deaf ears. Alicia Foon spoke to political sociologist Stephen Ratuva about Ramboka's attempts to put out fires within his coalition government. Ramboka's been trying his best to hold a coalition together but with some challenges. So uh, issues of discipline, so you have issues of 
differences in relation to uh, where things are going, how things to be done. And there are also, uh, of course, the scandals, uh, which has been rocking the government, the sex politics scandal, insubordination scandal, and so forth. So Rabuka has been seen as a weak leader. And as a military officer, that probably doesn't sit well. So he's trying to do something to assert himself uh, the same way that uh, his reputation as a coup-maker, as a tough soldier. So it's probably where the political psychology of his decision comes from and not to respond positively to Sodelpa's appeal to change his mind. So there's been some re- um, attempt at reconciliation. Things still has to unfold as to how that will end up. Although Rambuka initially is saying that he's not interested in bowing down to any attempt to reinstate Rondondo. So it's a stalemate of some kind. Uh, potentially can be destabilising in the long run. You brought up the sex and drug scandal. This has been dominating headlines for the past at least two weeks. Do you believe that it's a coincidence or that something is being unofficially addressed through this dismissal and now we're seeing a complaint against Linda Taboya? So that complaint is currently being assessed by the People's Alliance watchdog and the fact that a city has been dismissed and now Linda could be. Do you believe there's a link here to that scandal? Uh, well, it's, it's very easy to, uh, to make links. It's very easy to uh, drop conspiracy theories, I suppose, it's very, particularly when the same people are involved. And although the uh, situations under scrutiny are probably different from each other, but because they're linked in terms of personalities, so people make conclusion, maybe they're linked. Uh, certainly, uh, the way in which uh, the drag, sasca- drag and uh, sex scandal had played out has embarrassed the government. It has weakened its moral force, particularly in a Christian country, and particularly when uh, Rambuka and uh, uh, the leaders of Sodelpa and a few other politicians are actually uh, evangelical Christians. So there are these uh, levels of contradictions, uh, which, uh, uh, and of course, those connections uh, will be made and are being made by people. Uh, people are calling for both Rondondo and Linda Tambue to go. And, uh, you know, in the social media, in private, politicians are talking about it. And a lot of people in this country are also talking about it because it's being um, suggested is uh, all these candles are destruction from what the role of the government should be doing to address issues of development, to address issues of uh, opportunities, of education, of health, and all the energy is focused on the crisis which is at hand. Do you believe there is some truth to these scandals and what's been happening, despite Linda Tabuya telling us that it's fake news and then former minister Rondondoro and denying the allegations? Uh, well, the general feeling amongst people is that uh, there's some degree of truth in it and uh, there have been backstories as well to those who know about the two uh, in government and so forth, a lot of evidence there, but Naturally, the two will defend their uh, position because it's going to be very costly for them politically uh, in terms of reputation, in terms of the, uh, the moral high ground which uh, uh, they thought they would be occupying as leaders of the community. And so, uh, so they have to defend themselves. It's their right to defend themselves. And uh, if investigations show that, uh, the, uh, you know, in the case of Linda, for instance, uh, if it's true, then um, uh, there's some disparity processes, I suppose, which the party has to go through. It's been part of the discussion of certainly in, in the last uh, month or so. 
and it dominates the narrative. Suddenly, politicians, the public figures, and the payback taxpayers, there has to be accountability. They, they are role models, not only political role models, they are moral role models, they are cultural role models. They are, are looked up to. So it's important that uh, there the, are the processes in place, there are codes of conduct for parliamentarians. It's important to buy by those. I think it's very important that the leaders should be seen to be law-abiding and make sure that the, uh, uh, their behaviour is uh, exemplary. We have also been told, well, affairs between ministers and what they do in private is no one's business. That should not be the focus. Considering the Christian morals and the grounds and foundation that this government speaks on and acts on, do you believe there is that kind of moral discussion surrounding what is expected of politicians and parliamentarians when it comes to behaving at a, a standard that is essentially moral and biblical? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's multi-layered. Uh, this multi-layered. Uh, this kind of scandal, uh, you have to see it from different perspectives. Yes, it is true that uh, what happens uh, in private behind the scenes should be left there. But yes, for private citizens, that's true. But as in other country in the world, whether it's the United States, Trump is going through that in the court. Um, uh, and or it's, whether it's uh, uh, in Britain, um, in, in Australia, uh, those scandal, public sex scandals by politicians actually can be career ending uh, because it's of public interest, because it represents a very significant behavioral uh, issue for politicians. So politicians should be setting the tone in terms of. Um, how they behave. And if uh, in public they uh, uh, do things which may not be right in the eyes of uh, the community, then uh, there will be responses. And suddenly in a country where Christianity is dominant, particularly amongst the uh, indigenous Fijians, and there's a growing influence of evangelical Christians, so some of those issues which have moral implications uh, become part of the bigger, not only religious, not only cultural, but certainly political issue. But there have been scandals within the churches themselves, sex scandals, and a few ministers have ended up in uh, uh, in jail for that. So it's uh, it's something which is quite common, not not just in Fiji, but you know elsewhere, uh, especially at this point in time. Uh, it's very important for politicians to uh, understand that people on the ground, people in the community, still have moral view of the world, which has to be respected as well. The Cook Highlands celebrated the historic 50th anniversary of the Rarotonga International Airport this morning. Thousands of community members turned up to attend the grand festivities held on the airport's tarmac. Tian Haxton has the story. Half a century ago, the New Zealand government funded the development of an international airport in the Cook Highlands. After three years of construction, the runway was officially opened by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II on the 29th of January 1974. In a grand anniversary celebration this morning, the Cook Islands Prime Minister, the Honourable Mark Brown, reflected on how the airport benefited the country. The construction of our new airport began in 1970. Half a century later, this airport is the lifeline of our economy. An economy that saw our country graduate in 2020 to the OECD standard for a developed nation. 
The Prime Minister said the airport was born out of the dreams of the country's first Premier, the late Albert Henry. Henry had a vision that an international airport would strengthen the country's economy. Our first Premier, Albert Henry, could see back then that this airport would open new doors of opportunity for the Cook Islands. It was, as Papa Arapati called it, a stepping stone in our journey to economic self-sufficiency. Mr Brown said the opening of the airport in 1974 ushered in a new era of prosperity and development for the island nation. The chairman of the airport's board of directors agrees. Mr Taoro Brown said the airport is one of the country's biggest assets. He is confident it will continue to support the Cook Islands' development in the years to come. As we look towards the next 50 years, we do with confidence knowing that we are guided by the past experience and the proven resilience exceptional leadership and, of course, our faith. The Rarotonga International Airport has seen over 3 million passengers arrive in the country over the past 50 years. This is a steep difference compared to the 5,000 people that came through the airport in its first year of operation in 1974. Prime Minister Brown said no one then could have predicted the visitor numbers of today. Since our airport opened 50 years ago, we have welcomed 3.2 million passengers into our country, peaking at more than 170,000 in 2019. Such a grand achievement was well worth the week-long celebrations that concluded in Narotonga this morning. A commemorative plaque was unveiled, followed by the cutting of an anniversary cake. The day ended with cultural dance performances by schools and community groups. Taiwan culinary artist has recently been appointed as the executive chef at Auckland Sky City restaurant The Grill. Dolvai Bolognati's journey has come full circle as it was at Sky City where he completed his chef apprenticeship as a teenager. From there he gained international experience sharpening his craft in renowned restaurants spanning Hong Kong, Australia and Canada. And Dolvai joins me on Pacific Waves. Malolele Tovai, what was your reaction when you learned about your new role? Well, I wasn't a surprise, to be honest. I was, uh, I was, it was like a transition thing. Like, I knew that this, this spot was going to come up very soon, and my boss pretty much said, yeah, like, he pretty much trained me up to, as soon as the opportunity, opportunity came, I'll just slide right in. Food is such a big part of our Pacific culture. Does that play a big part in your culinary career? I mean, talk to me about your journey. Me getting into this industry started in high school, South Auckland, Southern Cross Campus. I was at an age, I think I was like 13, and we were getting asked those questions at that time, like, what do you want to do when you grow up and leave school and stuff? Didn't really have an answer. But I noticed whenever we go to assemblies, there's this, uh, our cooking class would, would always be winning, like, cooking competitions and stuff. They kind of, like, trigger the interest. And one day I was just like went and talked to that teacher that ran that program and yeah she kind of took me on board very young and uh yeah she kind of entered me into competitions at a very young age took me overseas and kind of like opened my eyes to this this path and uh yeah came back from that first trip and never looked back and now you're the executive chef i mean how would you describe the grill restaurant what's on offer the grill restaurant is is a new zealand steak and seafood restaurant. Our, our main focus is showing the world New Zealand's best when it comes to seafood, like just everything. We're still early ages, like of, of, 
finding these um, small farms and these cool stories and all of that. Right, and you've also built up an impressive portfolio given your international experience. So why did you return to New Zealand? Why did I come back to New Zealand? Yeah. Uh, COVID. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the truth is my, my wife and I left uh, New Zealand to go and do some travel and just kind of like experience countries that I haven't been to yet. We, we did like a, a two-month trip around Southeast Asia and um, Europe, and then we made our way to Canada where we stayed for two years. Then COVID happened, and then the plan from there was meant to go to Korea for another two years, but COVID happened, so we had no other choice but to come back to New Zealand. And yeah, that's the reason why I'm back. Well, I guess you can say that COVID was a bit of a blessing in disguise then, right? I mean, now you're... Yeah, yeah, yeah you can say that, yeah. Awesome role. Definitely. You know, from your perspective, would you say that there's an underlying perception that Pacific food is only taken seriously when it's on offer at a like a cuisine-style restaurant? I mean, I don't necessarily see an influx of balangis at the markets, but then you don't see a great number of Pacific people at these restaurants. Mm. Yeah, what, what, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that is a hard one, eh? I don't think our, our Polynesian cuisine has been established enough. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like putting everybody in the same boat. So I feel like Samoan and Nguyen and Tongan, they all do different type of food, although mm. it's similar, but like there is a difference. But um, I just don't think that we are, like our food is, uh, has a reputation yet. Okay, we're not quite there yet. We haven't, uh, we haven't built a, a, a reputation. And I feel like like chefs like Michael with his new uh, Matita restaurant is like, like a, a, definitely a stepping stone. And like, uh, I'm, I'm really proud that he works across the road and I could see him every now and then because I, I used to follow him from a very young age. Like when I started my career, he's definitely someone that I looked up to. And, and yeah, his, with Matita is definitely a stepping stone to getting the, the cuisine or the food noticed. Do you think you'll introduce Pacifica food into the restaurant menu? Oh, definitely. Well, maybe not, maybe not like authentic dishes, mm-hmm. but definitely the the my the feeling of when I eat my my favorite foods like little sepia and that. Try to recreate that that feeling with different ingredients. If, you, if that makes any sense. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Spotify, Apple and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, to Fast Week 4.